Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 330 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. So thrilled that you are here with me today as we are talking to Sangu Mandana about a subject near and dear to my flippity brain, how to harness ADHD as a writing superpower. And I think you're going to find this so fascinating, so interesting, even if you are not neurodivergent. Uh, But keep listening because she is a delight. You will love this interview that is coming up in just a few moments. What has been going on around here? Well, I have been proceeding apace with the edits I'm doing to Seven Miracles of Beatrix Holland for my agent. I am incorporating the copy edits that I hired, the marvelous copy edits, and I am incorporating some ideas from my agent and should, and it's only taken, you know, two weeks to do this. So that's awesome. And I'm going to ship it off to her tomorrow. And then hopefully we will go on submission with it. And you know that I have talked about this book forever. And if my agent can't sell it for what I think it is worth, I will self-publish it happily. And I am super grateful that I get to have this choice in a way. I was lying in bed last night thinking about this book and thinking, well, what would I accept? What's the number that I would accept? Who would I accept it from? What publisher would I want to be with? Because y'all know I want to try the Amazon imprint experiment, even though that's selling my soul to the devil. I am willing to be chained for a little bit to that just to see what would happen to be with the traditional imprint arm of Amazon, or would I want to go back to one of the big five publishing houses? What would they have to offer me? And I was just starting to spin when I just felt this thing come over me and I'm going to talk about it for just a minute. This particular book has a pretty spiritual, magical bent, and it was written um, with my own spiritual, magical bent in mind and with my own spiritual understanding the God of my non-understanding, basically. And this feeling came over me, which was basically, it's not your business, Rachel, this is where you just let go. You cannot control things. You can control the quality of this book and that's about it. And then hand it off and I don't have to worry about it. That's kind of what I felt. So I'm going to try not to worry about it. Feel free to remind me about this if I end up stressing later about things, but that's where I am with this book. So looking forward, I'm going to spend the next two weeks of November um, doing an evergreen course, maybe two, if I can fit it in. I don't know if I can, that might be trying too hard. And then I'm going to spend the beginning of December working on the fix that memoir, uh, doing a little bit of revision for the first three chapters. And then I'm going to go on this long five day hike. So that is coming up and it just all feels like things are slotting together, moving forward. I really love this feeling. So I'm just going to be here. Um, Speaking of evergreen courses, the webinar live class that I was going to teach as I'm recording this, I would have been teaching it tomorrow. I heard from a bunch of people who would, who were not able to attend the live webinar. And even though they would get the replay, 
they would miss the in-person Q&A, the Zoom part of it. And they were bummed about that. And that made me start thinking about this particular course. I have taught it multiple times before. And the thing about talking about the difference between traditional and self-publishing is that everything is changing all the time. So I am reading this awesome book because um, Sasha told me to do it and Joanna told me to do it. I am reading Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away by Annie Duke. And it is so good. And I was reading it and thinking about things. And I thought, well, it's too bad I set up this you know, live class and um, I've got people signed up for it. A bunch of people signed up and I don't, you know, I can't cancel on them. And then I thought, oh no, this is my job. This is my career that I get to drive it the way I want to drive it. And if I want to cancel it, I get to cancel it without feeling guilty because I really felt like this was the right thing to do. So I did this thing where I just emailed all of the people who had signed up for it. And I offered them either a full refund, no harm, no foul, or for that low price, they're going to get the full class when it comes out, if they want to just leave their money with me and I'll give them the class when it comes out. So I'm going to be recording Traditional versus self-publishing, what are the differences? What do you want? How do you choose which route to go? And in, what do you do when you choose that route? So I'm going to be filming that course. What I really love about that into making it an actual evergreen course is that I can do it in modules. Therefore, I won't have to redo the whole class, redo a whole live class every time something big happens in the industry. I can just lift out that module, re-record with the new information, drop it in, and it will be literally evergreen and anybody who gets it will always have access to the new stuff too that comes in. So I am excited about doing that. And I loved the liberation I felt when I thought, oh no, I get to do that. I get to, no one is going to cry themselves to sleep because I made this decision. Uh, no one cares. Uh, the people who are in the class are, half of them got a refund, half of them want the new class, which is basically exactly what I expected it to break down to. I thought actually more people would want a refund, but they didn't. And I'm so excited about that. So I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about this idea of pivoting. We talk about pivoting a lot when it comes to business. And Annie Duke points out that pivot just means quit. What are you choosing to quit and do differently? What are you choosing to let go so that you can go after something that may be more important, something that might bring you more money if that is what you're after. Oh, the book is so fascinating. You've got to read the book. You've got to read the book. She talks a lot about, you know, the um, sunk cost fallacy, which we all know about once you put time and energy into something, it is very, very hard to walk away from it. Even if you know about the sunk cost fallacy, including she had this amazing story about, and I'm just going to butcher it. So um, read it from her. But one of the men who first was researching sunk cost fallacy and wrote the literal book about it, went on to try to climb the hundred tallest mountains in the continental United States and like that. And on number 99, the person he was with turned back because it was unsafe and he did not turn back and he died. He died doing that because probably the sunk cost in his head was like, no, this is the last one. I have to finish. I have to do this. This will get me my 100 or 99 or whatever the number was. I'm absolutely butchering it. But so people who know about sunk cost still cannot 
break themselves and make decisions to let things go. So I'm doing a lot of thought about how I want to talk to writers about letting things go that may not be serving them, letting books go that may not be serving them, letting advertising that goes towards books that isn't working to sell those books, letting that go as I am thinking about all of this stuff for myself. So my brain is kind of just zinging with it. And I, I'm sure I will be talking with Sasha about it on the Black Heron. So um, that's going to be coming up. Let's see what else. Oh, I am about to film a special just on YouTube um, short video on how I'm changing things around in terms of my social media usage, switching to m- reaching for micro journaling rather than <laughs> TikTok, which I'm pissed at. I'm just pissed at how much time I can give TikTok if I'm not paying attention. And substituting that with a new habit, which is microjournaling, which is just me reaching for a virtual piece of paper instead of TikTok when I want to reach for something. I reach for that and talk about my feelings, what I'm doing, how my emotions are, how my energy is really tracking that stuff. And it's going to be awesome. And I'm really liking this new commitment that I have. And I'm going to be talking about that in a short video over on YouTube. So if you are not a member of my YouTube channel, if you're not subscribed, please go do that. You can just search for Rachel Heron YouTube. It comes right up. I think it's Rachel Heron writes and that'll be on there. So that's going on. And um, otherwise, let's just jump into this amazing interview with Sangu. Here is her bio. Sangu Mandana was four years old when an elephant chased her down a forest road and she decided to write her first story about it, as you do. 17 years and many, many manuscripts later, she signed her first book deal. Sangu now lives in Norwich, a city in the east of England with her husband and kids. The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches is her most recent release. And it was a fantastic book. Okay, please enjoy this interview with the delightful Sangu. And thank you so much for being here. Hey, you're a writer. Did you know that I send out a free weekly email of writing encouragement? Go sign up for it at rachelherron.com slash write. And you'll also get my Stop Stalling and Write PDF with helpful tips you can use today to get some of your own writing done. Okay, now on to the interview. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm I'm Sangu Mandana, and my pronouns are she, her. And yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Sangu. We are speaking across the world, almost as far apart as we can possibly be in the Mm, world. Yeah. And I've just been so excited to talk to you about your writing process and about your newest book, all of these things. Um, But let's kick it off with my favorite subject, which is the process of writing. You write a lot. You have written Mm -hmm. a lot. How how do you get it all done? How do you do it? Break it down for (laughs) us. (laughs) Uh, And that is like funnily enough one of the harder questions to answer right um, <laughs> you know it used to be easy um i've been writing since i was very very young like we're talking pre-teen um and when i was a teenager i went to school sort of you know the usual nine to three and i had a full school day and i came home and i did my homework and i still somehow had the energy and the passion to write um I don't know where that energy is gone I think when maybe <laughs> when you hit your 30s it just disappears 
um, my husband and I like to joke that our children have so much energy because, you know, they leech it out of us. I would not doubt that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so my writing process has changed a lot. It used to be every minute that was free, I I was either thinking or writing or brainstorming. And now it's whenever I have just a little bit of time and space that I'm not um, devoting to like the kids or to the house or to life, (laughs) you know, like, um, I, I think it's it's hard being an adult. Um, adult responsibilities are, are a bit crap. <laughs> Do you tend to be uh, would in your in your druthers? Would you prefer to be a morning writer, evening writer, or have you really changed to an all the time, whenever you can? Ah, uh, it is whenever I can. But I will say that. I seem to get the most done late at night after everyone else has gone to bed. I'm the one who will stay up um, until the wee hours and then um, probably like four or five in the morning, maybe go to bed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it is, it works for me because it's not ideal. It's not sustainable because sometimes you have to be up early in the morning, regardless of what else is going on. But my husband also works from home. And our kids are all in school at the moment. So he does the school runs and it means that I can sleep into a chunk of nice. the day. Yeah. Uh, so it does work. It's in, in the short term. I'll say that. Um, it doesn't work for long before I have to reset a little bit. Because sooner or later something happens. You've got to be somewhere at 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. Or God forbid, 8, 8 a.m. <laughs> Uh, so my process is very much when I can usually and this is not good for my posture or my back or like my aging bones um, on the sofa right where I'm sitting now uh, with the laptop on my lap and sometimes sometimes I will get on like the desk bike and the desk bike it is actually one of the coolest things I've ever bought um wow. so it's it is it is a bike it's like a uh-huh. stationary at home exercise bike and then there's a desk where the handles would be so wow. like you're you're just typing while your legs are pedaling oh my goodness and how do you use it regularly is it <laughs> not as regularly as i should <laughs> I'm just yeah. like telling on myself here. Um, I have a standing yeah, desk. I mean, it's, it's two feet from me and I barely get to it. You know that. That's... Yes. Well, it's, it's that, isn't it? It's like you think if I had this, I would use it all the time. And sometimes you're just like, no, I just need to sit. Um, <laughs> and also like the thing about a desk bike is that like any bicycle seat, it's not comfortable to sit yeah. on for long. Yeah. Uh, so I can maybe do like half an hour or an hour and then I get off. But I will say that it is surprisingly easy to forget that you're pedaling while you're working. Because it's like the legs are doing their own thing and the rest of you is. That's so cool. Yeah. So I will sometimes use that. But usually sitting on the sofa, anytime I can possibly manage. Um, sometimes I'll, I will like, write on my phone. Um, and how much... Oof, I think, again, that varies because of how unstructured my writing time is. 
so there are days when I can get 5,000 words done, and that's good for me. Um, and then there are days when I get, I'm lucky to get 500. So yeah. I, I, I make it work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you work deadlines around that kind of fluctuation in your life? With a lot of stress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I would like you. <laughs> like, I mean, I wish there was any, like, I, I wish I had a better answer, like for myself yeah. as much as like, for advice for anybody else um but yeah it is just it i have adhd me too and yes. i amazing so you probably will understand then what i say when i say that having that pressure that urgency is sometimes the only thing that makes me actually knuckle down absolutely so my publishers are all very reasonable people so they will give me like six months three months four months to write a book however long I say I need really yes and I will write like a trickle until the last couple of months and then most of it will come out because I'll be like oh my deadline oh no Do you ever stop to think about the magic of it though? I think about this a lot that how is it that I can, you know, I'll give myself, you know, five months to write a book or whatever. And I'll mm-hmm. know, I'll know the exact second three months out that I need to start now in order to deliver to the hour when mm. it is due. Like, how, do we, how do we do that? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> And this is not to say that it's a perfect system for me because I, I will admit that I have been late to a deadline before. Um, and, I mean, you know, things happen. I think I don't I can't think of many people who were able to do things on time during 2020 and, yeah. you know, most of 2021. Like they were just. Mm. Um, but. So, I mean, it's not a perfect system. And for my own stress levels, I would prefer it if I could just, you know, work at an even sensible pace. That is not how my brain works. It's an all or nothing brain. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I'm either hyper-focused or the executive dysfunction is strong. I will not do anything. <laughs> of, uh, a, a friend and student yesterday sent, said a phrase to me that was so striking. I wrote it down. Um, she was searching for the space between all or nothing. And mm. I thought that is gorgeous. And I don't know what that looks like, but I want to no, think about it some no. more. I'd like to find out. I mean, I, <laughs> I'd like to live in that space for a little while. Yes, exactly. Um, but no, it's, it, it is, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I genuinely, I don't know enough about like um, brains and neurodiversity and ADA, even ADHD, it wasn't that long ago that I didn't know I had it. Um, I think with women, it were often diagnosed yeah. a lot later, yes. and sometimes not into not until we're in our thirties, like me. And I, so I mean, I don't know enough about it, but I do think that it is a thing with an ADHD brain that it is very all or nothing. Yes, yes. There was a. Um, do you listen to the podcast Ologies? No. With Ali Ward. It's wonderful. And I would recommend uh, uh, probably about six months ago, maybe five months ago, she had a two-part series on ADHD. Mm. And she really goes into the science behind things. It's called Ologies. And this was the ADHD series, these two episodes, because her husband had just been diagnosed and then she was diagnosed. And and um, she got the leading person on ADHD who basically 
started studying it in the 70s when I was diagnosed as a, as a very small child um, mm. before they even called it that. I must have been a terror. But uh, uh, it was really fascinating and you really might like to listen because I thought yeah. I kind of knew a lot about ADHD and it turns out I didn't. So mm. I would I would recommend, especially for us creative types um, doing this kind of job. I mean, I think that a, a big part of the reason I had no idea I had it and nobody I knew knew I had it was because we have such a singular, narrow, sometimes completely incorrect view of what ADHD is. Yes. Um, and also how it, you know, manifests in boys and girls and mm-hmm. different genders. And it's just, yeah, it, it's, it, it, it's Wait, big. It's a big thing. It's big, it's confusing. And for me, um, for most of my life, it looked like a superpower. And I treated mm. it as a superpower. I knew how to harness it. I knew how to put yeah. it into practice. And that's how I got more done than anyone I knew. Um, unless I was lapsing into complete executive dysfunction. Yeah. I mean, I, I do kind of wonder if that's what I did without realizing that's yeah. what I was doing. Because I was a really high achieving student. Mm-hmm. In spite of the fact that I didn't yes. do things until the last minute. Yes. Um, and obviously I didn't have a name for it. I was just, you know, I just did what I did. But I do wonder if maybe, yeah, I too harnessed my superpower. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I <laughs> It's love a really this. nice way this. to look at it. Yeah, that's the, it's the only way I can let myself look at it. <laughs> <laughs> what is the biggest challenge to you when it comes to writing? I mean, I think we've covered a lot of that, which is the executive <laughs> dysfunction. Yeah. Um, it is because, and I, you know, I didn't know. It has been such a relief to know that that's what it is. Yeah, because for you're not lazy time, or bad. Or, yes, yeah. lazy. That's it. That's what I. That's the label I slapped on myself. That's mm-hmm, the label I heard. Um, because that's what you think. You think I know I need to do this thing, yet somehow I can't seem to get myself off this sofa and I just want to scroll mm-hmm. through Instagram. And I, but I know I, I, I want to do the thing. I just can't make myself. Mm-hmm. And for so long, it just looked like laziness. And it's been such a relief to understand that it is literally something in the brain. Um, and yeah, that would be my biggest challenge. And it's why I end up working so close to my deadlines. Because when that urgency isn't there, it's like, my brain's like, this time, this time, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> While the rest of my brain is like, um, no. Yes, yes. One of the one of the most startling things that ever happened to me was when I finally started taking medicine, which was only, you know, I was diagnosed at you know, five or six with mm. hyperactivity. They didn't call it ADHD back then. And then I was diagnosed again at 40. And then I was diagnosed again at 40 eight, something like that. And I just started taking medication maybe eight or nine months ago. And Mm -hmm. I took the Ritalin. And then an hour later, I looked down at a to-do list, which had been chasing me for months. And I made a phone call that was on the to-do list without thinking about it. I just made the phone call. It took two minutes and I was done with this task that I had been procrastinating for months. And I walked into Mm -hmm. the kitchen and I told my wife, I'm like, "This this is magical. I don't even know how I was able to do that. I just did it. Uh, yeah, that, that is magic. That is it, amazing. It is. Speaking of yeah. speaking of magic, we're going to speak more about magic. But what is your biggest <laughs> joy when it comes to writing? That was a nice se- segue there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, my biggest joy. 
You know, I think it's the way character relationships unfold. Mm. Like, I, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I love the magic and the fantasy and the, um, you know, the the sort of the the imaginative leaps you can take. Like when I write children's fiction, it's like all about as wild and as wacky as you can make it, and I love that. But I think the thing I love most, because no matter what I'm writing, this is always true. It's the way characters interact, and I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that like they do it all on their own, because I am still, you know, pulling the strings. But I think they surprise me. I will write a character, and the way they interact or the way their relationships unfold is always just such a joy to see. And I love that. I just love, I guess, the human connections between between characters. Oh, that's gorgeous. Does that happen in a first draft for you, or is it something that layers in more in revision? Mm. Or both? Probably more in the first draft. But then my first drafts are not really first drafts because I can't just sit and write. I go back and edit everything. I've done. It's um, um, I have OCD as well as ADHD, and you'd be surprised how they do not get along. <laughs> I've heard this. I have heard this. Yeah, because you know how people will give you a lot of like advice about things you can do to make life easier when you have ADHD, and there'll be things like put things in clear boxes so that you can see what's in them and you don't forget. Great advice, but the OCD goes no, don't like it. Mm-mm. <laughs> What I a don't pain. <laughs> but um, yeah, but part of the OCD, I think, is needing to go back and make sure everything feels right before I can carry on. Yeah. So by the time I get to the end of a draft, I've edited everything already um, a few times. It's usually more like a third draft, just one that no one else has seen. Um, so I would say that that is when the characters really take shape and their relationships. I don't think that when I've done revisions with my editor or my agent, I don't think the character relationships have ever really changed much. They're already there. They're set. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so interesting. Yeah. Can you share a craft tip with us of any sort? <sighs> I'm trying to think about what might be the most, you know, I think one of the most helpful things that anyone has ever said to me, and so that's what I'm going to say now, is that there is no such thing as a new story. Um, there are no new stories. So, you know, if you feel like you're telling a story that's already been told, tell it anyway. That there, there, there are no new stories. But what there are are new voices. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer in the fact that nobody will ever tell the same story exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a lot of people, especially marginalized voices, voices that have too long been sort of pushed to the side or ignored or given very little attention when they haven't been ignored, those voices are needed. And I think everybody's voice, everybody's story has value. And I think in terms of craft, let yourself tell the story you need to tell. If you think it's been told before, even if you think that it's been told a hundred times before, chances are no one will ever tell it the way you can tell it. 
Um, and I said I say that especially to like marginalized authors and writers because our voices have been pushed aside for so long that I think that we need to take that space back. Yes, yes. And we need to be helping you take that back and encouraging this. I feel like there's this beautiful crack of light that has been happening for the last few years. Yes. More and more voices breaking into publishing, but it is not enough. I don't know if it can no, ever I mean, when be you, enough. When you look at the statistics, it's not. Yes. The numbers still aren't particularly good. But I do. <laughs> but I do. I mean, I have. I've read so much um, like amazing fiction by authors of color, by queer authors, by trans authors, by disabled authors. And I wouldn't have had that like five, yeah. ten years ago. Um, we yeah. didn't have that. I didn't have that growing up. Um, I didn't have neurodivergent authors. I didn't have neurodivergent brown authors to mm -hmm. kind of read. I'm sure they existed, but they either didn't get the attention they deserved or they weren't being published um, at the time. And yeah, so I think that it is so important that we let ourselves tell the story we need to tell, even if it doesn't feel like an original story, because, you know, there's no there original. original. There's, no. There is. And no one will ever make those character, especially where you're talking about the character relations. We are the mm -hmm. only ones who can make those character relations sing in our own language. It reminds me, um, I've, I read recently and then I had to Google it again the other day because I didn't believe myself, but there is um, an almost statistically zero chance that when you shuffle a deck of cards, it will mm -hmm. ever be shuffled the same way anyone else in the history of humanity has ever shuffled it. Isn't that I fascinating? Mean, and that, that is in I can believe that. I mean, that does make sense. But it's also amazing, isn't it? That that and is it's, just yeah. yeah, it's it's just four suits and thirteen yeah. numbers and Jack Queen King, which is the same thing with story. Like there's nothing original yeah. there. Everything has been told, but the way we shuffle these ideas together will always be completely unique. So that is like a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. Thank that you. Is, I don't that think is I, true. I don't think I thought it clearly through all the way until right now. Um, may I ask you what thing in your life? Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just going to say that's that's how it works, though, isn't it? You don't think things until you've said it out loud. It's like, oh, that was actually a good point, wasn't it? Hopefully I hold on to that one. Um, may I ask you what thing in your life affects your writing in a surprising way? Um, I mean, I, this isn't surprising, but my kids having children uh, affects my writing. I mean, that's not surprising at all. They, How many they, do you like have? I said, three. Yeah. Um, I had them, we had them when we were quite young. I was 22 when we had our first. So the oldest is now 11, almost 11. Oh my goodness. Not yet 11. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the brain is forgetting everything. Um, but. And so, you know, they, they, they are a joy and they have inspired me in so many ways. But they also, you know, take up a lot of time, energy. And so I think they, they've had an impact on my writing in good and not so good ways. But, you know, you take it as it goes. I think my ADHDs had the same thing, good mm -hmm. and not so good. Um, I don't think I'd be half as creative if I didn't have ADHD but I probably also get a lot more done, you know. <laughs> it's uh, two sides of the sword, so they, um, so to speak. Uh, surprising, surprising. What might have? <laughs> Do 
you know, I, I I really don't know. I can't no, I think, think of anything think off the top of my head. The, the kids but, is a great uh, is a great answer. What is the what's the best way that your kids affect your writing? Because I'm sure you can think of a lot of difficult ways that they affect your well, writing. You know, <laughs> yeah, I can. <laughs> well, you know the um the, the, the being inspired by them, um, getting ideas I never would have gotten if it wasn't for something that I did with the kids or something one of the kids said, or in some cases my oldest will you know give me ideas like directly. He will say, "Why don't you do this in your next book?" I'll be like, you know, I like that. And, you know, by the time it makes it into the book, it's something completely different. But it's that spark. And I just find them be having young children around all the time makes me more imaginative. It makes me remember what it's like to be that childlike, to be that excited about things. And I think with all fiction, but particularly children's fiction, you need to have that excitement and that joy. Um, and they may give me that. And I think that is probably one of the best ways they've affected my writing. If I didn't oh, have kids, and, then I, you know, I don't know. I really, I couldn't even tell you what yeah, I'd be writing it, if I didn't have kids. It would be completely different. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah. Is, what is the best book that you have read recently? And why did you love it? Ooh, I read quite a few that I've absolutely loved recently. Um, the Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher. I keep so hearing good. about this. Oh, it is just, it is so good. Uh, it, it, funnily enough, it's my first ever T. Kingfisher novel. Not going to be my last. And it's, it's just so good. It's, um, it's a fantasy, high fantasy. And it's about... Um, the youngest princess of a kingdom who finds out that her older sister is married to a cruel, abusive prince of a different kingdom, but for political reasons, they can't do anything about it. So she decides to take matters into her own hands and tries to, and like puts together this ragtag crew of people to help her effectively assassinate the prince. Which, you know, I just, I, I mean, I love it when characters are just like, you know, this is the simplest solution. We're just going to do it. Like, who cares about moral, like, dilemmas? And, you know, and because there are themes of abuse and um, it, it, it can be dark. Some of the themes mm -hmm. are dark. But surprisingly, it's also a really warm, cozy, funny story because of the way these weird, outcasts come together mm, and make yeah, this yeah. little this little found family and they go on like like a, you know like a road trip effectively yes. a quest a, um to find each other and then to you know go and take on the prince and you know by the end of it it's like it's not even that important um what happens i mean obviously it's important that you know she rescues her sister but how the prince is killed how he's defeated all of that it doesn't really matter it's the fact that these people have come together and you had and... me at the those words, ragtag crew. Yeah. And again, you're. And you know, are. Yeah. And and how many times have we seen the ragtag crew? And how many times do we want to? That's you know that's I want to see T Kingfisher tell this story. You know how exciting yes. that is. Yes. And we never. Um, I don't think it's. A, I think it's one of those things you never get tired of, isn't it? No. Especially when you have in some way come from the margins. You always yeah. feel like you're going to identify with the ragtag crew. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it is a lovely book. Um, 
well, it does have, you. like I said, um, some 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 dark themes and you know obviously content warnings for the abuse, but it's just brilliant. I love it. Thank you. Speaking of brilliant, cozy, fantasy, <laughs> romantic-ish books, can you please tell us about The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches, which is such a good title, by the way. And also <laughs> both of your covers for, I, I assume they're the the UK and the American. They're so good. Mm. Well, they, honestly, I got so lucky with those covers. Both publishers just did an incredible job. They are amazing. Um, yeah, so The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches is, like you said, a cozy romantic fantasy, a contemporary fantasy about a lonely witch who has grown up with these very strict rules about how witches are not supposed to spend time with each other. And breaking all of these rules, she is roped into becoming a tutor to three out-of-control magical children. And who live in this remote house by the sea with three, four, not three, four um, quirky guardians, one of whom is scowly and grumpy and handsome, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) Exactly. And really, I mean, it's about how she, you know, meets this family, um, finds the family she's never had, finds a sense of belonging and falls in love as well. Um, so yeah, there's really just a story about a found family and accepting each other, regardless of how different they are. Uh, the the reviews are sublime. I was not able to get NetGalley to work to get uh, the copy from the publicist. However, I've already pre-ordered it. Um, my next, oh. the my my sixth genre that I'm jumping into. Uh, my next book will be uh, uh, paranormal women's fiction, and it's complete and it's the story about a witch and um, queer. And so I'm just, and, and while I was writing this book, I wasn't allowing myself to read all the books that I wanted to read in the mm-hmm. genre because it kind of messes with my head Yeah, and your, yours has been at the top of my list. So as soon as it drops, it's going to leap into my Kindle. Oh, I'm yay. so excited about that. But, but, but I will say what, by the time this goes live, the very secret mm-hmm. society of irregular witches will be available everywhere and everyone should go out and buy it and where can we find you um so i'm on instagram that's where i'm most active i am on twitter as well but instagram is really where i am um so it's just my user like just my name um sangu mandana and i'm also i also have a website where you can sign up for a newsletter again sangumandana.com and the newsletter kind of gives you um news (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and also things like um, sneak peeks at um, early reveals, uh, behind the scenes stuff. Um, so, you know, if you're not really a social media person, then the newsletter is the easiest way to get everything direct to your inbox. Otherwise, Instagram. Yeah. It has been a total delight to talk to you. I'm so glad that it, we were able to connect. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. <laughs>